Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on child death and rape. Listener discretion is always advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season five, episode one, and we're so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1990s psychological horror film, Misery. It was directed by Rob Reiner and written by William Goldman, which he based off of Stephen King's novel of the same name. The film stars Kathy Bates, James Caan, Lauren Bacall, and Richard Farnsworth. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it. Mm -hmm. Are you still here? Okay, cool. Let's get this morning started. So not long after directing the 1987 comedy The Princess Bride, Rob Reiner was asked to make a movie adaptation of Stephen King's 1987 book Misery by one of his producers. Reiner, who had previously directed the 1986 Stand By Me, which was an adaptation of King's short story The Body, agreed and eventually invited the Princess Bride writer William Goldman to write the film's screenplay. What? That's so cool. Yes. So apparently Stephen King had refused to sell Misery's adaptation rights because of how other works of his, (coughs) The Shining, (coughs) were mishandled in film translations as of late but eventually let Reiner do Misery since King approved of Stand By Me upon its release. Given that Reiner's career was in directing and starring in comedies, uh, another famous comedy Reiner directed was When Harry Met Sally. Oh my god. Once Reiner read Misery, he identified with the theme of a, quote, guy who needed a new challenge who needs to push himself and grow, unquote. Oh, cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So Reiner admits he prepared for this new challenge by binge-watching Alfred Hitchcock films (laughs) like Psycho and the Birds. Reiner worked very closely with William Goldman on the screenplay, with Reiner explaining that, quote, We got rid of most of the gory and horrific parts. I wanted to concentrate on the idea of this chess match between the artist and his fan, unquote. So, for example, in the original novel, the villain, Annie Wilkes, severs one of Paul Sheldon's feet with an axe. William Goldman loved this scene and argued for it to be in the film, but Reiner insisted that it be changed so that she only breaks his ankles, feeling that the severed foot would be too graphic for the film's overall tone. That's interesting because I feel like the hobbling scene is actually worse than if she were to just chop his foot off. I absolutely agree. Oh, God. So upon its release, Misery grossed over 10 million its opening weekend, finishing second at the box office behind Home Alone, 
which opened oh. two weeks prior. Oh my God. <laughs> Misery eventually finished with 61 million domestically. Misery is widely considered among King readers as one of the best Stephen King book-to-film adaptations ever, with Stephen King himself stating that Misery is one of his favorites. Hmm. On the recent passing of screenwriter William Goldman, King tweeted on November 16th, 2018, quote, So sorry to hear of the passing of William Goldman. He was both witty and talented. His screenplay for my book, Misery, was a beautiful thing, unquote. As of this recording, Misery is the only film adaptation of a King novel to win an Oscar. Kathy Bates won the award for Best Actress in 1991 for her genius portrayal of Annie Wilkes. Yas, queen! <laughs> and I'm going to link her acceptance speech in the show notes because it's pretty hilarious. Aww, it's, she's the best. It's so cute. <laughs> the character of Annie Wilkes was ranked number 17 on the American Film Institute's 100 Greatest Heroes and Villains list. And John Woolley of the Tulsa World said, quote, Misery emerges as a great picture of fan obsession and of that curious mix of hero worship and hero bashing personified, unquote. Hmm. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Yes. Author Paul Sheldon is only known for his series of romance novels about a young woman named Misery Chastain. Tired of being a one-trick pony, he kills off the character of Misery and begins work on a new novel about something completely different, gangs and street life. On his way back to New York City to deliver this new book to his publisher, Paul crashes his car during a blizzard in Silver Lake, Colorado. He wakes up immobile in the home of former nurse Annie Wilkes, who has seemingly rescued him from the crash. She also just happens to be his number one fan. She expresses her gratitude for his writing, stating that the Misery book series is his greatest work of all time and had helped her through her divorce and night shifts in the maternity ward. She even names her pet Sow after the main character. Grateful at first for her care, Paul's life soon spirals into a world of nightmares as he quickly learns that Annie is a psychotic stalker who wants control of his work and future novels by holding him prisoner in her home. She begins by making him burn the only copy of his new novel, which she believed had too many swear words, and writing a new Misery novel, where Misery Chastain is brought back to life. Paul is also threatened, drugged, and hobbled by Annie, as well as hidden from the authorities who search for him. After the book Misery's Return is finished, Paul tricks Annie by burning the book and distracting her, hitting her on the head with his typewriter. After they struggle, Paul is able to finally kill Annie by hitting her in the head with an iron shaped like a pig. 18 months after his escape, his new non-misery book is published, but he experiences PTSD and still sees Annie in the faces of all of his fans. Thank you so much, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. (gasps) Yeah. So let's talk about the Bechdel test. It doesn't pass. (laughs) That's all I have to say. I'm kind of mad about it. Oh, no. Because it could have. Because the cast is, let's go into Nancy's dream team test. The cast was 50% women and 50% men. Yeah. So there was an equal amount of representation here in that sense. Um, 
but none, no one talks to anybody. Okay. So Nancy's dream team test, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. There was only white people in this film. Yikes. Yeah. Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? Nope. No, 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 no. Well. All right, cool. Well, there's that. Yeah. So, guys, there are a lot of themes of addiction and Mm. entrapment in this film. Mm -hmm. So, Paul, of course, is trapped physically by Annie, right? Mm -hmm. So, he's kept in a bed. And then when he starts, like, getting up and getting out of his room, she gets gets upset with him. So, like, she breaks his ankles. Oh, my God. So, he can't move anymore. Mm. And he's also trapped by the drugs that she's giving him. I guess in the novel, he becomes addicted to them, but it's sort of unnecessary to kind of have that in this. Yeah. So, but what? But he still has to take these painkillers, and they still make him compliant mm-hmm. because she forces them. And he's also trapped in his career, right? So he's writing books for a fan base that he's tired of writing for, and... He only did it to get his foot in the door, and now he's stuck. Yeah. Which makes it fitting because Annie breaks his feet. Oh, dang. Holy cats. Yeah. So many metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, Paul isn't the only one. In James Smithy's article, Rereading Misery, he states that, quote, Annie is trapped in the books and the worlds that she loves. She is trapped by her past, and she is trapped by mental problems. Mm. If we want to even look beyond that, the sheriff is, like, trapped in the small town, maybe? It seems like he is feeling trapped in his marriage. Yeah. Along with his wife. Exactly. They're like, oh, well, I guess we've got each other. I guess you'll do. But it's kind of funny because the whole town seems trapped because they're snowed in constantly. Yes. So, like, there's no mobility whatsoever any way you look at it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yikes. And, you know, this story was partly inspired by King's own professional life a lot of people look at this and they're like oh Stephen King must have been feeling weird about like he wrote like pulpy horror novels and then he eventually I guess wrote a fantasy novel called The Eyes of the Dragon which I've never heard of (laughs) okay so I guess that means something and he got a lot of like bad feedback about it and then of course Misery was one of the next books that he wrote but Something that people don't know is that he wrote this while he was struggling with his drug addiction. Oh, okay. And he actually used Annie Wilkes as a metaphor for that nagging dependency. (sighs) Yeah, so it's it's not so much about him writing horror and then changing to fantasy and people not liking it. It was more about how he was addicted to drugs. And in an interview for the Paris Review, King said, quote, Annie was my drug problem, and she was my number one fan. God, she never wanted to leave, unquote. Whoa, that's really cool. The way that he did that was like, 
I'm not a gigantic Stephen King fan, but I really do think that this book is a work of genius. You know, uh, we've we've talked about this before. I'm not a big King fan either Mm -hmm. in regards to his writing. Right. But I respect him because I think that his ideas are are phenomenal. Yeah. I love the movie adaptations of all of his books. Yeah, that is very true. Yeah, I think that uh, I think you're right. I think this was a work of genius on his part. And I kind of want to talk about gender roles being reversed in this too, because that is something that isn't done often by Stephen King even too. Yeah. So uh, we talked about this before, most recently in our Cat People episode, Uh, but Annie Wilkes is a rare bird in horror because she's a female villain in a genre that is undoubtedly governed by male villains. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... I read this great book called Body Double, the Author Incarnate in Cinema, and it's by Lucy Fisher. And she says, quote, rather than an innocent female being trapped in a menacing man's home, here gender roles are reversed and Paul is feminized in the process. This is a radical about face from his earlier macho deportment, whereby we have seen him smoking, drinking, throwing snowballs, and driving heedlessly into a blizzard with the song Shotgun blaring on his car radio, Yes. Oh, my God. Like I said, like, this is not only something that we don't normally see with Stephen King, but we don't normally see this at all. Yeah. But to sort of, like, kind of see the other side, because I think this is a great thing that there's a female villain in this, but to kind of hear what other people have to say about it. Mm -hmm. According to Jacob Nadelman in his article, Marriage is Misery, (laughs) yikes, he says, quote, misery reverses this fundamental dynamic of horror film. Instead of a male villain and female hero, misery presents us with a male hero and female villain. Correspondingly, instead of a feminist movie, misery is a misogynistic movie, (sighs) unquote. I read this and I wanted to throw my computer. I wish you all could see Gracie's face right now. She's so done. <laughs> it's contorted into this <laughs> possessed look. Well, I'm so upset. What do you think about that? Okay, here's the thing. This film is based on the premise of holding someone prisoner, right? And we mostly see women victimized in this way, as we mentioned before. So very seldom are men rendered helpless like this. And if they are, these crimes are perpetrated by other men. Annie plays the role of a manipulative, abusive captor. And that's the other thing. Men are often the abuser in films, but this brilliantly shows the fact that women can be just as abusive. And it's important to shed light on the topic of female-on-male domestic abuse. It's terribly underreported. Yes, and as we know, feminism is about equality. So if we're not talking about this kind of stuff, like... What's the point even? Well, right. And that's the that's the common, unfortunately, the common misconception with feminism is that women are always supposed to be heroes. They're always supposed to be good and pure. And men are always villains. No. <laughs> 
Absolutely effing not. No. And like Jacob uh, Needleman also said, quote, finalizing the film's crusade against women is the climax of the film in which Sheldon, Paul Sheldon, performs a symbolic rape of Wilkes, Annie Wilkes, by shoving the burnt remains of Misery's return down Wilkes's throat. Yikes. Yeah. And while I do feel like that it is a symbolic rape scene, it's almost like a rape revenge film in reverse Mm -hmm. because Annie has objectified Paul throughout his capture in her home. And to me, by shoving like Misery's return down her throat, which I I feel terrible, but I do laugh at that scene every time I watch it. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Because he's so had it and yes. he's so broken I've by had her. it up to here with your kidnapping <laughs> it's true like he is so done and he is so broken by her yeah and so this is sort of like his return to power and freedom as a creator yeah which is also really interesting because technically annie should be a giver of life as a female yes but like instead she takes away life Mm -hmm. she because she also kills these children in the maternity ward so she kills babies and paul being a writer brings characters to life Mm -hmm. so yeah gender expectations down the toilet i love that me too Mm. Mm. and i want to quote kate blair in her bitch flicks article called slashing gender assumptions this is such a great article it's in the show notes Please find it and read it. It's amazing. So according to Kate Blair, she says, quote, In the real world, most documented violent crimes are committed by men. But in a film where anything can happen, there's no reason to make this assumption. That's why the gotcha-like reveal is also what makes these films so powerful. In shock, viewers think, why? Then after a moment's reflection, we think, Why not? Mm -hmm. Furthermore, female killers go against all the traits women are assumed to possess and upend viewer expectations about femininity. We simply don't expect murder from women, especially not the kind involving penetration and mutilation, aka the hobbling. Mm -hmm. It's frightening. But at the same time, As a female viewer, this moment is so powerful because it's rare for us to see ourselves reflected in such a persona. Horror movies have always allowed women to explore their masculinity, and inhabiting the role of killer is an extension of that playfulness. Yes, girl. I love this so much. I know. So let's kind of expand on this and talk about domesticity and maternal rage and women in misery. I don't think it's reaching. Maybe it's reaching. But to me, I look at this and I think it can be argued that Paul could represent a child. Yeah. And Annie can represent maybe that maternal rage towards... Yeah, I totally agree with that. Okay, good. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you didn't, I would still explain why. (laughs) So given that Paul is like largely crippled, right? He basically is immobile, just like a baby. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, Annie has to take care of him. 
and she has to handle his urinations. <laughs> that part where she's like shaking the bottle of urine <laughs> over the bed. I'm like, girl. The oh. sound in that is so great. That sound editing Ew. was perfect. Ew. Yes. It was. Disgusting. It's, exactly. It's supposed to be. But mm. that's why that. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> so she has to take care of his urine. <laughs> she has to bathe him. And she has to dress him. And she has to dress his wounds and everything. And she also has to feed him. Mm-hmm. Like, there's also that scene where he first comes into consciousness after he's been rescued by her. He looks up and it's like, it's, he's in a daze. It's kind of foggy. And you, like, hear her, like, cooing him and being like, I'm your number one Ooh, fan. So scary. Yes. But it's sort of like he's just been born and he's, like, looking up at his mother. Yeah. So, like, Annie also, like, shaves him, right, one day, and mm-hmm. she's, like, just like a baby. So she even, like, says, like, his face is smooth like a baby. And he attempts to escape from her house, and he crawls on the floor like a baby. Oh. And he scoots around in a wheelchair like a baby walker. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, it's so good. And all of his viewpoints, like, from the beginning, all of his viewpoints are from a low angle. So everything from the doorknob to like Annie herself is intimidating mm-hmm. because Kathy Bates, I think, is like five three, five two. Mm-hmm. She's short. Yeah. For to me. Yeah. <laughs> She's my size. Okay. <laughs> I'm short. It's okay. I struggle. And she <laughs> I mean, and she's she's shorter than him. Yeah. You know, in every scene, she looks so intimidating and tall and frightening. Mm-hmm. And that's obvious. That's not a mistake. Like, they do that on purpose because that is how he sees her. And we also get really close to her face as well. Yeah. Like, the first thing I think is, like, shaking baby. And it's so sad. But it's, like, having this baby in your face and, like, oh, Like, yes. And that's what it feels like, especially when she shakes the bed when she's upset about misery being yes. killed off. Oh, my God. You're terrified. You're yeah. terrified. And you, you're you so vulnerable Aww. to her. Yes. And so that's why I feel like she could easily represent that maternal rage. Mm-hmm. I mean, going on about, like, her being a parent, I guess, like, she praises him like a crazy parent like she calls him like brilliant and like a genius yes and everything you do is perfect except when you swear and except when you do things that I don't like yes then I'm upset with you yes and of course going back to Annie being a maternity nurse like she killed all of those babies Mm -hmm. when she worked at the night shift there I'm sorry I'm talking a lot but this is (laughs) this is all important stuff so This is also really great because Paul kills off Misery Chastain in childbirth. Yeah. Which is reminiscent of Annie's love and devotion to him. So by killing her, it's sort of like matricidal. Yes. Because Misery is everything that Annie is. Well, in a way, too, that kind of takes away her power because she's murdering all of these helpless babies. And then her favorite novel character is killed in childbirth by a baby. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I want to quote Kate Blair again. She says, quote, making assumptions based on appearance is particularly deadly. Mm. Older women are often overlooked. 
And I think Annie is the same way. She appears super maternal. Yeah. She has like this warm and kind and gentle look to her. Like she even wears like a little golden cross around her neck. So you would assume that she would be like a good Christian woman. (laughs) But we all know that doesn't mean crap. Yeah. Annie is the exact opposite of what she appears to be. And she has a darkness inside her that she doesn't have control over. She's like a cute lady that goes to church and makes you a hot dish, but actually poisons the hot dish and is like, enjoy your dinner. (laughs) Yikes. But no, I totally, I, I definitely agree with your viewpoint in this way because it reminds me of, it's sort of like parenting in that sense that Paul starts out innocent and helpless and in need of constant care and then he grows stronger and he's like a teenager rebelling against his mom and he snoops and he disagrees with Annie and he fights for his freedom but she's so domineering and she's like a mother who won't let her child grow and she wants him to be complacent and just agree with her so it's pretty heavy stuff if you look at it that way really yeah it also makes it sad yeah and i know like i've i've listened to a few podcasts that have talked about the movie and the book and a lot of people said that it act they actually felt misery Mm -hmm. watching it yeah they felt no joy (laughs) (laughs) there was zero percent joy so when i i really tried to pay attention to my emotional state when I was watching this film. And I did. I was terribly sad watching it. Mm -hmm. And I really think that has to do with nobody in this film is happy ever, really. Not totally and completely. No. Now we're going into, like, the meaning of misery, but, like, Annie is alone. (laughs) She only has this book to keep her happy Mm -hmm. and but she has these bouts of like you know she has a mental illness obviously paul is is obviously stuck in this life that he hates he even named his character after his feeling towards (laughs) these books the sheriff and his wife who are very funny seem a little bit mm, yeah like you said complacent with each other yeah and even his publisher really is just like is not getting what she wants from Paul because she wants him to keep creating yeah. certain things. So she's sort of unfulfilled as well. Everyone in misery is miserable. This is a real downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry because now we're going to talk about mental illness. Oh, good. That'll really lighten the mood. <laughs> so Annie in the film and I believe in the book is never given an official diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, but in an in- an interview with a forensic psychologist on the special edition DVD, uh, he characterizes her as displaying symptoms of several different conditions, hmm. including borderline personality disorder, which is BPD. Uh, and BPD is commonly thought of as a mental illness that primarily affects women who make up 75% of the diagnosis in the United States. Wow. However, this trend may be caused by gender biases in the mental health field for various reasons. Because apparently, like, some symptoms of BPD are similarly feminized. Like, 
the frequent co-occurrence with like eating disorders mm-hmm. is more of a female thing. Yep. While others are considered quote unquote normal male behavior, like being promiscuous. Man, that also I'm sure has to do with men not reporting because that's a that's a huge problem in yeah. the mental health world is that men don't feel like they are manly if they go and seek out help, which is it's such a it's a messed up um, standard that men have to deal with. So that's why gender norms are harmful. Yes. The idea of a gen- of gender norms is, are extremely harmful. Yeah. So according to Tessa Rackard's article on Bitch Flicks titled Domestic Terrorism, Feminized Violence and Misery, she says, quote, Misery is not the only thriller that dramatizes symptoms of BPD to create a female antagonist who becomes obsessed with someone she desires and terrorizes that person with emotional outbursts and impulsive violent behavior. Oh, my. Let's consider Alex played by Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. Mm. Heidi, who is played by Jennifer Jason Lee in Single White Female, or Evelyn, played by Jessica Walter in Play Misty for Me, which is a great film, all of whom have been described as having BPD. Although they resemble each other as far as the threat they present their film's protagonists, Annie is a markedly different sort of woman. In her own words, she is not a movie star type. Her clothing is plain and modest, and she is older and larger bodied than the other female villains. She is a hopeless romantic, but in short, she lacks sex appeal. Hmm. Annie is also different in that she is coded as working class and rural, unquote. I think also her mental illness could be blamed on her lack of access to health care, possibly. Mm-hmm. Silver Lake is unlike New York City, where Paul is from, in that the citizens seem to be a little bit behind the times. This is actually super, it's made so clear when the sheriff is trying to investigate what happened to Paul. And he's like, yeah, we'll put it through our system. (laughs) He just writes a sticky note. But, you know, perhaps lack of modern medicine and technology also helped Annie get away with committing so many crimes as an angel of death. So the film does a great job of addressing that problem because Annie could represent the sort of lesser taken care of as a citizen of Silver Lake, while Paul, who undoubtedly has had experiences with all different types of people, does his best to survive his captor's outbursts. So I think that by showing that sort of lack of access to healthcare, especially for the time that it came out in like the 90s or whatever like that was not being talked about very often no and she also lives like you said like she doesn't even live in like a heavily populated area she lives in silver lake colorado on a farm by herself yeah do they even know that she was a killer at one point probably not no Probably not. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about like female stalkers. While all of these films like Fatal Attraction, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Single White Female, The Crush, Play Misty for Me, all of these women, right, are dressed, have dressed their threats up as sexy or forbidden. And then Misery's tactic is almost more menacing because, like we said, she slips under the radar. Mm. 
She has that gosh and golly gee rural American sweetness about her. Mm-hmm. And although moviegoers might be immediately off put by Annie Wilkes' cloying goofball tone, her obsession is made clear right out of the gate. <laughs> While Wilkes's love for Sheldon is tinged with romanticism, she's largely prudish. Yeah. What is so different about female stalkers? Um, I found a study called A Study of Women Who Stalk, and it's by Rosemary Purcell, uh, Michelle Pathé, Polly Mullen, and they're all psychiatrists. I have have their resources in the show notes. But their objective uh, is the authors examined whether female stalkers differ from their male counterparts in psychopathology, motivation, behavior, and propensity Mm -hmm. for violence. So their conclusions were that female and male stalkers vary according to the motivation for their pursuit of their choice of victim. Highlighted, a female stalker typically seeks to obtain a close intimacy with her victim who usually is someone previously known and frequently is a person cast in the professional role of helper. Mm. While the context for stalking may differ by gender, the intrusiveness of the behaviors and potential for harm does not. Stalking by women is not uncommon. Community-based studies of stalking and victimization indicate that women are identified as perpetrators in 12 to 13 percent of cases. Well, Annie talks about how misery helped get her through the darkest times in her life. Mm -hmm. And since Paul was the genius behind the character, Annie, I think, automatically looks to him as kind of like a savior a helper yes but at the same time she really she thinks that she knows all of this information about him and that kind of thing because she is his number one fan but she has never met him before they've Mm -hmm. never encountered each other so it's just it's strange now that's interesting because she has a signed copy of his of his face Oh, in her house, which I mean, she could have met him at a book signing or something, or maybe she mailed something into him and then he mailed back a signed picture of his face. Mm -hmm. But to me, when I saw that, I thought, "Ooh, has she met him before? And he doesn't remember her because he's met so many people maybe. for like book signings for misery or something stupid. Oh, that's so maybe she has met him before, but we don't know. She never mentions it, but I don't know that that signed picture kind of made me wonder. She seems like the kind of person that would go out of her way to go to a meet and greet. And she also knew that he was staying at the hotel in town. Yes. Like, how did she get that information? <laughs> Well, I, you know, this is so funny because this is all before the internet and we'll talk more about that in our final thought, but th- that's how obsessed she is. Yeah. She has Ugh. to go out of her way to find all of that information because she doesn't have the internet to just look up like, where does he like to finish his last novel? Like, mm-hmm. or his latest novel or whatever. Like she knows. And did she move to Silver Lake? To be closer to him, knowing that he goes to that lodge to well, finish his books? It was either move to New York City or move to Silver Lake. And since she doesn't really seem like the type that would fit in in New York City very well. Ooh. Yeah, because she said that she was like, I stand outside your window. Yeah. With your li- and see your light on. Voyeuristic, I think that's called. Yes. When you like, people don't know you're watching. Right. But you are. Right. <laughs> 
I would say get a hobby, but I think her other hobby is killing babies. So probably (laughs) caught between a rock and a hard place. Oh, okay. So let's talk about frailty and fandom. And I want to quote my favorite line from this film. Annie says, quote, you better hope nothing bad happens to me because if I die, you die. Unquote. I love that line. This is why. And I'll tell and I'm gonna explain to you why. So uh Stephen King has called misery a story of fan love, which for him is the purest love there is. That's what he said. Um <laughs> All right. (laughs) As a sign of this, Annie has collected all of Paul's books and has named his her pet pig Misery. Right. And she also has that signed photograph. Mm. Going back to Lucy Fisher's book, Body Double, the author incarnate in cinema, she states, quote, here we recall that the word fan is etymologically related to fanatical. (laughs) A term that implies excess and even psychopathology. Furthermore, we realize that the portrayal of this kind of fan is most often attached to the female. Mm. Unquote. Fangirl. Fangirl. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Kathleen Franz and Susan Smulian, I think that's how you say her last name, they said that in the 19th century, quote, Women and girls were widely criticized for their frivolous addiction to novel reading more often than were men with similar interests, unquote. Mm. So we talked about this previously in the episode, like the maternal side and domesticity side of Annie, but this could easily mean her fandom as well. If all the Annies in the world were to go away, were to die... No one would care about Paul's work. He is literally at the mercy of his fans. That's why I love that line so much. If I die, you die. Yes. If Annie is gone, then Paul is nothing. Ooh, that's deep. And obviously, it's in the context of him being strapped in that bed. But when I heard that line, I was like, that's what that means. Yeah. What we see in Annie Wilkes is exactly what she is. She's a mega fan who doesn't understand boundaries. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. And she's someone too invested in romance series storylines who can quote dialogue word for word, who knows mundane facts about his life. And I mean, she even knows what grades he got in school. <laughs> um, but Hazel Sills said, Quote, it's a chilling, claustrophobic story about consumer celebrity dynamics, and it gives it a relevance that helps it run, or rather hobble, (laughs) laps around almost every stalker movie made before or after. Because as much as it's parable with horrific obsession, it's also a story about how fans relate to people who live their lives in public, a phenomenon that is increasingly more commonplace for everyday people. Yeah. Well, hmm. So if we wanted to get political with it, though. Get it. Get political. (laughs) We could compare Annie to some Trump supporters in Mm -hmm. so many ways. Sure. Her naivete and narrow worldview make her dangerous and maniacal in the way that many passionate Trump supporters live as well. Because if Trump's 
supporters die, he dies. Exactly. He's the only reason. That's the only reason that he is even remotely, like, <laughs> in power in some way. Yeah, absolutely. But also, Annie uses misery as a coping mechanism and an escape from real-world troubles, much like MAGA supporters have used Trump's rhetoric to feel more comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. And she also talks about the quote-unquote old days when she would go to the cinema and there was always a happy ending. And when fans are expecting a certain outcome, the outrage is usually pretty palpable. Like, I know some people got sort of worked up about, like, the new Star Wars movies as an example, too. Me. <laughs> You mean me. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, it's feasible, though. It's like, but it's the same thing that we hear from many super fans of Trump and his policies, which only work for some people. Yeah. And that's so funny because she also talks about like marriage and how marriage is different. Like nobody. Yes. Nobody respects marriage anymore. Yes. Like, and, um, and that is such. It's I, old world. It's old world. Like the way that she's describing it is like yes. the institution of marriage and stuff. It's just like, okay. Yes. <laughs> like it's, it is, it's old world. You're right. Like she doesn't want any sort of variety or diversity in her life. She wants it exactly the same, just the way that she wants it. And if she doesn't get her way, then she doesn't react very well. Wow. Okay, so final thought. Misery and the age of social media. Mm. So like we mentioned earlier, like people who (laughs) aren't even famous can have stalkers just because they've been found on social media. Girl, let me tell you. No, I know. (laughs) Abby knows. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yikes. Okay, so I'm, we're laughing, but it's not funny. No, it's not. <laughs> it's very scary. We're laughing because we, we'd be crying. Yes. <laughs> we weren't laughing. <laughs> so misery highlights the sort of relationship that festers, I love that, festers in private. Mm. Attached not to a real person, but a public persona of a person yes what happens is arguably a writer's worst nightmare and that is like the same nightmare for anyone who leads any sort of public life online yes i mean at all and not to parent shame because i'm not a parent yeah (laughs) because i i don't understand what that's like but one thing that my husband and i talked about was that when we have children we've decided to not show their faces on social media Mm-hmm. And that is because you really don't know people. No, <laughs> no, you don't. Unless here's the thing. And this might sound very, um, I don't know, closed minded, standoffish. I don't care. Whatever. Unless you have known people for a substantial amount of time. And I'm talking like years and years. And even then. Mm, I was going to say, even then, yeah. You just don't know. You never know. So I know. And that's sort of a sad kind of way of life. But it is, but that's how it is. And in 1990, misery represented a complete imbalance, right? So there was super fan and celebrity with access limited to signings and, of course, the media and television shows. Uh, but today, like we said, like the connection is closer because we have... First of all, we have email, which is like nothing, right, anymore. Yeah. But Twitter 
is a huge way to connect to celebrities. I mean, the line is so blurred with Twitter. Yeah. Which is, you guys might have noticed that we don't normally use our Twitter account. Yeah. (laughs) We have one. That's because we suck at it. But (laughs) we also, I actually have this really uncomfortable feeling with Twitter. Yes. It gives me this icky feeling yeah, And Annie Wilkes may relate to that feverish excitement of meeting an idol or realizing they're not who you thought they were. Uh, and in Sheldon, social media happy viewers may relate to the expectations his fans put on him. Yeah. So, I mean, we all have an Annie in ourselves. Mm-hmm. We all have a Sheldon in ourselves, a Paul yeah. Sheldon in us. And that's why we can relate to both of them yeah, on the screen in some way. Because mm-hmm. I think it's unfair to say that we don't have something that we love and that we obsess over. Oh, yeah. Because we do. Like you and I like our podcasters, but we both have podcasts that we love to listen to ourselves and geek out over and text about and talk about. Yeah, and if I ever met any of those people, I would probably immediately start crying. So I get it. (laughs) But then being podcasters, we also know what it's like to respond to fan mail and to respond to the lovely messages that we get from people who listen to us, but also messages that aren't so great. Yes, Yes. (laughs) Where people have put expectations on us Mm -hmm. because we have a voice. Yes. And you said that you had a moment where you were like, oh my gosh, people listen to the show. Yeah. And I I like, it's (laughs) kind of like when you think about where humanity came from and you get in your own head and like your own thoughts and you're like, okay, I have to stop thinking about this because it's just too much. I, kind of, I I was getting ready for work in the bathroom one day and I was like, what is my life? <laughs> what if I say something that will upset them or let them down? It's like, whew, man, the anxiety that comes with that. I have had many sleepless nights with that thought in my head. Or it's like when you say something dumb and you're like, should we edit that out or should we keep that? And you end up keeping it. And then you go back later and listen to it. And you're like, why did I say that? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, No. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, I know. So that pressure is immense. It is. But I mean, there's also a lot to be said for being like pigeonholed into a certain genre or audience, Mm -hmm. too. So many people may only appreciate one side of you. And become overly critical when you want to change directions. Right. And in this day and age, anything can make or break you. And back when Misery was released, I think obviously that process of going downhill was slower. Mm -hmm. But now it can happen overnight. And the interesting thing is, Paul's accident could be a metaphor for this day and age. Like one small decision, like going back to New York to bring his publisher his new work led to his accident and before he knew it he was in the care of Annie who is a monster it works for the time because everyone knows everything about their favorite celebrity like nobody has any secrets and we are constantly connected to each other and at one point Annie has a conversation with the sheriff about becoming Paul quote unquote so that she 
so she can write his new novels because everyone thinks he's dead. Much like how anyone can see what you're doing on social media, copy it, and become just as famous, even if they're not who they seem to be. Annie is a different person on the surface, and that's what we get a lot of now, that like duality of people in real life versus their social media presence. Wow. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. That's it. Hope you liked it. <laughs> ah. yeah. At this moment, we would like to thank our Ellen Ripley patrons. We have James, Jarvis, Travis, and Michael. If it weren't for you guys, Abby and I would not be here today with this podcast. Nah. We really wouldn't. Uh, so thank you so much for making our dreams come true. Mm-hmm. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We review horror trailers and new movies over there, so check it out, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. (laughs) Sorry, we just talked about social media. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Now follow us. Yeah, be creepers. Uh, so find us at Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. We are also on Tumblr at Good Morning Nancy. Also, tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>